Konnichiwa. Howdy, y'all. I'm Leslie. And I'm Laurie, and welcome to Sumo Kaboom, where we talk about all things sumo. Yeah, and this week we're talking to Colton Runyon. He's the guy that was featured in a John Gunning article, gosh, maybe about a month or so ago. Mm-hmm. Kid from Texas, went to Japan, has studied sumo, has competed at Worlds in sumo, has trained with some familiar names. You're going to find out who those are. And is also a PhD candidate at Cambridge writing about sumo. Yeah, he's one smart cookie. I mean, everything he said was really fascinating to me as someone who spent so much time in Japan studying its history and and, uh, culture. He just blew my mind. And then he also knows so much about sumo. Yeah, we just had to talk to him because he feels like a local kid. He is he, a local kid. He's, he's in Texas. A stone's throw away from us. Yep. And he has been all over the world with sumo and it has just a love of Japanese history. We think you'll enjoy listening to him a lot. But first, newsflash. Ichinojo has a new Japanese name. He shall now be known as Shun Miura, and I think he gets part of his name from his master. So to get his citizenship, he had to have a Japanese name, and that is his new Japanese name. But we will probably all still call him Ichi. Ichi. Good old Ichi Nojo. Or Sleepy Bear. Well, yeah, there's lots of different nicknames. There's also a joint Keiko that is back in session. And I think the first day they had about nine Sekitori who showed up, including Takayasu, Mitakiyumi. And Takayasu said about his injury, he said, hey, he's not really bothering me. I feel pretty good about it. So I'm, I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm fine. So he's back. That's good. But uh, Wakataka Kage has chosen to skip out on the joint Keiko. He said he has been working, though, very hard at his stable. Mostly, of course, you know, practicing with his stable mates, but studying old videos. And I know we talked about it, or I don't know, maybe I read about it. I don't know. But Hako was known for always, always, always studying videos mm-hmm. of years past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the approach that Wakatakakage is taking these days. He's researching the old greats, Chiyono Fuji, watching a lot of Harama Fuji, and third generation Yokozuna Wakanohana. So I'll be interested to see if his uh, technique has changed before this next, you know, Kyushu tournament and see if he's put in some of those other guys tricks into his into his fighting did i say that right sure. i don't know if i said that right yeah so that is all i've got in the news territory let's jump to the interview shall we Colton is one of those interesting guys that was watching video games as a kid, and it inspired him to look more into Japanese military history in particular. He went on to do Asian studies at the University of Texas, and then he got involved with the JET program, which is the teaching English program in Japan. That's a lot of people's entry into Japan, and he went that route as well. When he was in Japan, he was part of a charity tournament with all the other teachers there in which they started to do sumo. And he won that tournament with all these other uh, sumo amateurs, sumo Mm -hmm. beginners. Um, I I will say, obviously, the other, my 
fellow uh, competitors also didn't have much sumo background either. Um, (laughs) You know, I I didn't just walk in and and I wasn't just a a natural. Um, I had done some sport before. But yeah, it was was a great tournament and it it really fueled my, my desire for it. That's fantastic. And then after that interest got sparked, you started you started thinking maybe I could get a maybe I could do a bit more training in this. And so you started training wherever you could in Japan, including some middle schools. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, um, sumo is still taught at some, or rather, is it's one of the after school activities you can do at some schools. Yeah. And one of my fellow JET members, their school, they had a middle school that had five coaches and two students. So it was like, okay, they'll allow me to go up. And it was, it was quite the drive. But yeah, I went up there and first learned at, at, a, at a middle school when I'm 22 years old. <laughs> and by the way, where were you in Japan when you went over there? Where were you teaching? Sure. I was in a little town called Kosaka up in Akita, which is the second most northern prefecture in Honshu, which is the main island, right below Aomori and right next to Iwate. So very uh, cold, uh, snows yeah. a lot of a lot of the months out of the year. Absolutely beautiful, all four seasons. Mountains everywhere, lakes no one goes to, so they're very pristine. Lovely uh, place. Japan uh, is a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. So you had a wonderful introduction to Japan. Uh, mm-hmm. Came back home to the United States and started studying sumo uh, a little bit more seriously, and then got onto the U.S. sumo team. Is that correct? Well, I, I came back initially to start a teaching career. Um, so mm. I was a high school teacher over here, but in so doing, I wanted to continue practicing. I didn't study it because I didn't have anyone above me. It was I was actually the one teaching the classes, but by teaching some of my high school students who were interested in the sport and then my brother as well, through training them, I was able to maintain my own training. Wow. Ah, okay. So you were doing that while you were getting your master's degree and teaching at the same time? Master's degree would be a little bit later. Um, okay. I, 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 there was quite a bit in between my master's and my uh, bachelor's, but I, yeah, I was full-time teaching and then teaching sumo in the evening, trying to get in onto or trying to win a national championship and get onto the national team, which I thought was going to take four or five years to do. I ended up winning at my first nationals, which was a little unexpected for me. And then I was on the team for a few years there. Wow. What what were the years you were on the team for the U S so I've represented the U S at Cali Columbia in 2013, uh, in Poland in 2017 and then in Taiwan in 2014 or 15, and then I skipped two of them in between there, and I haven't done it since. But in the meantime, or at some point in there, you went back to Japan to get your yes. master's degree, and that's where you started studying sumo at uh, at stables that you know whose names we recognize, correct? So I actually well, that was before I did my master's uh, when I was 24. <laughs> I. I it's a bit convoluted. Uh, when I was 24, <laughs> I decided because I, I went to Columbia right in, in 2013, and I just yeah. got absolutely smoked, just smoked. And I was like, okay, I I want to actually see if I can be good at this. So at that time, I decided to go to Japan, and they initially set me up for just two weeks at Nichidai, uh, uh-huh. Nihon University's sumo team, which is that's one an incredible program. 
It is. It's phenomenal. It's one of the most prestigious you could go to and one of the hardest ones, right? And they right. set me up yeah. for only two weeks, but I bought a one-way ticket. Oh. And, <laughs> Good for you. And, <laughs> and when I arrived about three or four days in, because I also speak Japanese as well, because um, I've lived there before. So a few days in, they were like, hey, we like your Tachiai and we like what you're doing. Uh, the, the world championships is in three or four months. Do you want to just stay while you do that? And I was like, yeah. So then I stayed, <laughs> I stayed with them. And then after that, after the world championships, like, Hey, do you want to still wrestle? And I was like, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I continued wrestling at Nichidai for uh, like full time for eight, nine months. And then I had to start working again because I wasn't actually in the country on a, like I wasn't a sumo wrestler. I wasn't a, I wasn't a professional. Right. So right. I had to start teaching again. And then that kind of, it's hard to do full time athletics and full-time teaching so eventually i had to stop uh doing sumo altogether but i had spent a full year with nichidai and then towards the end of that was when john gunning who you guys have talked to uh mm -hmm. was taking me around to some of the professional heya to wrestle a bit and then i developed a personal friendship with baruto ozeki i don't know if you remember yes. him. Yes. and he because he was uh coach while well, advising the Estonian national team, right? Who who came to Nichidai to practice, and then I was there, and uh, he and I went to a couple of Bayas together, spent some time in Tokyo together, and developed a pretty good friendship there as well. He's got a good head of hair, that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's he, he's impressive all around. Yes, that I would be so intimidated. I mean, obviously, you knew who all these people were, but yeah. were you intimidated when you first met some of these big guns of sumo? Uh, no, and and, I, and I'll tell you why. the The inner circle of sumo is, I mean, it's, it's quite exclusive to others. Like, it's very hard to break in, but once you have broken in. Mm -hmm. Everyone there really appreciates what you're doing. So everyone I ever talked to, all the way from former Ozekis to guys who are right now in Makonuchi or people who would never actually go pro, everyone had a lot of grace uh, when they talked to me. And they had no issue with you know, whether my Japanese wasn't very good or whether I trained for a long time because they could tell that I really cared for the sport and mm -hmm. they care so much about it that they were always very open for me. That's wonderful. How difficult was it for you to break in there and, and to find a stable and a university team to train with? Well, I, I would say, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't that hard at all. If I'm being honest, uh, it could have been harder. Um, but it, it's it's you have you have to it, it was just a relationship that made a lot of sense for both sides. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I arrived again, I was only supposed to be there for two weeks. They brought some other Americans over before. Uh, most Americans, and then they also brought up some Europeans as well. You know, they didn't speak any Japanese. Uh, they they, mm -hmm. they they didn't understand the culture. The like the sleeping habit. We had to sleep in the same room as the Ichinensei, which had uh, mm -hmm. which are the first years, and you had ten, oh. fifteen giant sumo wrestlers sleeping in the same room, and all you yeah. have is is a little <laughs> futon that you're sleeping right. on. So it, it was it, it was a it was, you know it was a shock for some people, but I only cared about wrestling. And then even though I was not very good at all, they really liked my Tachi-eyed because I, I just do a standard Densha Michi, which is the railroad, kind of some just hit, hit the guy as hard as I can and go forward. And that's mm -hmm. essentially what they teach you to do anyway. So they're like, okay, we like how you do this. If you want to stick around, you can. 
So it wasn't actually that hard. I kind of fell into it, but also, I mean, I was determined to fall into it, if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so how loud were those sleep apnea machines when you were in? <laughs> I, I wish we had them. That's all I can tell you. So it's just a hum of snores that you'd have yep. to figure out how to sleep through with earplugs or without. Yep. And a, oh. and a big sliding door right in the middle. Like it wasn't even like a normal a big sliding door that led into the hallway, which just flooded the room with light every time it was slid open. <laughs> It was it, it, it was hard. It was it was it was difficult to sleep. Thankfully, practice is so exhausting; nothing yeah. will wake you up. But yeah. right, yeah, it was tough. What time did you start your morning practice? Okay, so Nietzsche Dai doesn't do morning practice because they oh. are students. Okay. Right? So, oh, okay. So, so, so they do have to go to class. So we would actually do our practices. We had two practices: the main one in the afternoon, and the one in the later evening for students that didn't make it to the first one. Mm-hmm. But the uh, main one was at, if I remember right, it was at three in the afternoon. And then we would practice very intensely for just a couple hours and then go shower up, rest a bit, and then have dinner at six. Okay. I was wondering where that big meal of the day is. Yeah. <laughs> and how would that differ at the stable? So at the at the stable, the, the, the couple stable that I went to, we obviously started very early in the morning as right. opposed to in the afternoon. And the practices were a lot longer, but considerably less intense. Interesting. Oh, yeah. At least in my limited experience, I, you know, I only went to three practices at three different professional heya and then at Nichidai. And Nichidai is known, you know, it has a reputation for very difficult practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found the shorter but much more intense practices more difficult than trying to spread it out over four or five hours. Because a lot of it, you know, you're doing hundreds of shkol and you're doing all these other various exercises. But when you're doing the practice matches, those matches are spread out over a longer time frame. You get more time to rest. What they used to do for me at Nietzsche dies, they'd have me do 10 matches straight. You know, which, which, which is very intense, uh, while the other place would be like, well, you wrestle, and if you won, you'd wrestle again, wrestle because it's a king of the hill kind of style. But right. if you lost, you got to wait at least two or three matches before you went back in. Did you ever have a day where you're like, I'm really tired. I think I'm going to lose this match so I can <laughs> take off a few oh, minutes? <laughs> I, I, I never had to because I lost a ton. You got all the rest you ever wanted. (laughs) Yes, I I, I certainly did. Now, they have a really interesting system over there. I mean, they, you learn by losing. Right. Um, That that is the only way to learn. And the coaches also will will drill this into you. Uh, And a really good case in point is what I would do at Nichidai is when I first arrived there, I was the last guy picked, right? So they like all the best wrestlers would would fight one another, and you're supposed to like you know pick me, pick me, pick me. They'll never pick you. They have no reason to fight you. <laughs> and then eventually they get tired and they go away, and you keep going down, keep going down. And I was I was the last guy picked on the field every single day when I first arrived. Yeah. And then the coach would say, okay, well since you two are the last two guys, you're going to fight each other. And the guy I fought, you know, the, the first two weeks I was there, he beat me ten times out of ten. Every day. I mean, it was it wasn't even close. And then a couple weeks in, I start winning one or two. And then a week later, I'm beating him six, seven, eight times out of ten. And then the coaches never have me fight that guy again. 
Then they uh-huh. ask the, 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 the next, you know, who they think is best to start wrestling me. And then he kicks my butt for a couple of weeks. And then I start beating him and then they move me on. So you learn through losing. My record in sumo is is atrocious. Like my, <laughs> if, if you were to take my practice matches, I would have less than less than a 5% victory. And this would count, <laughs> this would count the ones when I was teaching people, but you know, like it, you learn through that that system and and when when you're trying those different matches like there was one day i was i was really really upset that i was losing so many so i attempted a henka which is very against what i do at sumo uh-huh. and i won the match and my coach was like what are you doing i'm like well what do you mean he's like no you don't do that in practice you don't do that at all that's not the point you yeah. know, he just said drop your hips and hit the guy and then there were so many times where, like, you know, you hit a guy, you hit a guy, and he would so easily just push you straight out of the back. And you you feel so defeated. And then your coach was like, yeah, good match. Okay, good. Do it again. And you're like, what was good about that? All I did was just get pushed backwards. But he liked, yeah. you know, the, the, so they, they do not care about you winning particularly in the way that they practice. They don't teach you special moves or anything. I find that fascinating that no one's teaching you how to throw certain moves, that you are Mm -hmm. figuring it out on your own. And then you have lots of people around you who are constantly better than you that you're just trying yourself on all the time. Yeah. And and that's in particular the Japanese way I do it. The Mongolians, as you would know, watching professional sumo, the Mongolians are much better at at the belt throws. And that's because they, they, you know, they have a different philosophy when they're growing up in Mongolia before they make it over to Japan. But yeah, it it was like, I remember the first day I did a proper throw and, and no one had had taught me. It's just, this guy had thrown me like 600 times and I, (laughs) And you just finally went, okay, I, I now feel where my body is and where his is. And I could just feel him get a little bit off balance. Oh. And, and then I just, I moved. I moved in a way that, and it wasn't even a thought or anything. Just my, my arm moved and he went down. It's like, oh, well, there's my first throw, you know? And, and then the, they were just like, yeah, okay, cool. Get up, do it again. Who cares? But again, mm-hmm. they, they always, it's always push forward, push forward, keep low keep your arms in. They don't ever teach you it. All, all the different, you know, ways to win all the Kimarite. They don't care. No, no, no one does. Really? Those. Really? Wow. Okay. Wow. Here's my random You're question. Kind of my mind. I know. Here's my random question. How yeah. bad did your thighs hurt? Uh, when you first started sumo, being down that low, like how bad did your knees or your thighs hurt? Or maybe you just are blessed with really strong <laughs> thighs, buns and everything. But it seems like that would be the hardest uh, physically, like the most sore part of your body. It, it Well, it, it most it is definitely what gets activated the most. You're certainly right there. I have incredibly short limbs. So I have very short, stout legs, which makes me quite good at squat and squatting. So in, in, in sumo, it, it, it's quite good. Um, for me, it was my, my body was ready for that. But you know, the first time you do one hundred or two hundred skull, you're 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 burning. But I, you know, eventually after a couple of weeks of that, it's not your thighs that are burning. It's because it actually is pretty good cardio. Like you're actually breathing yeah. heavy and you're sweating, as opposed to your thighs burning. Um, ah. So for me, it was it was thankfully not too bad. And I always like, I used to lift, and I or I still lift, but I was lifting before sumo, and and I really liked squat. So I I, I found that okay. It was natural for me. That's awesome. So uh, please help me with my Japanese. Sure. I have been pronouncing it Shiko forever. Yeah. 
But it's shko. Well, so obviously you you have the two syllables, right? You have she yeah. and you have ko, cool. and you can you can say shiko or you can say shko, which is really just all I'm doing is truncating the the i there. Yeah. Um. And and any I don't want to correct your Japanese here because anyone who is an actual native speaker or close to it will be listening. Go, that's not the guy you want to base it off because apparently I still sound very American when I speak Japanese. But I do know where to be lazy. I know where to cut syllables out. So I only say shikol because I don't want to say shiko. So like sumo、right. has its own way of talking. Yeah.、Um, so I actually got quite good at you know talking like sumo wrestlers do, and then I went out and talked to normal Japanese.、They're、like, what are you doing? <laughs> I like, I, 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 well, you know, because because it kind of sounds it's the same thing. Like if you learned all your Japanese from watching old samurai films, like you're not going to sound like a modern Japanese person. Well, now I'm I'm curious as to <laughs> wonder what we're learning. What 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 is sumo talk? Like how how do sumo wrestlers talk so differently than the general public? Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not a linguist. Thankfully, I'm a historian. I'm not very good at language, so I can't. I won't break down everything for you. But I mean, just the easiest one, right? Like, as as you know, because you lived in Japan, what do, what do people say when they want to say thank you for a meal or when they finish eating? Arigatou gozaimasu. You could. You know, remember you know, the other one? Oh no! Gozo sama deshita. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Right, but in in sumo wrestlers say gochan des. Oh, gochan des. Gochan, and, and, and like when I would go into restaurants, if I said gochan des, people would immediately look at me and be like, you know, and then they they'd ask me, like, do you do sumo? Like it、oh, is a word、oh. used by sumo wrestlers almost exclusively, and it means the same thing. It's, you know, thank you in the, in the same way we did before, but it's just very specific to sumo wrestlers.、Hmm. Okay,、right. back to the sumo. So I know you've done football too, sumo、yep. and football. Uh, mm-hmm. How do they compare? What are the differences in training, or the differences in、sure. attitude of the athletes? Oh, sure, sure. Okay, well, how long you got? I'll, I'll try. I'll try to answer those pretty short.、Uh, so obviously, you know, I, I played. I played for an adult team there in Japan, and then I was、uh, the starting nose tackle for the University of Cambridge, and then I was also president of the club. So I did quite a few years of football. After I never played football when I was younger. Uh, okay. I skipped a few grades, and here in Texas, you can't skip a few grades and be big enough to play. So, wait,、um, you skipped a few grades like Doogie Howser? Are you one of those smart kids? He is. Are you? Oh、yes. my goodness, you're a smarty <laughs> man. No, no, no one said anything about my pants being intelligent. It's just like <laughs> I, I, I just decided I wanted to skip a few grades, and one of the things that I had to sacrifice for that was. High school、yeah. sports, right? Yeah, yeah. You know. Well,、um, if it just... makes you feel any better, I was held back a year. <laughs> <laughs> And look at her now. Look at、She's、me now. Sumo kaboom, sumo、hey. kabooming it. There you go. <laughs> We aim high here in the Collins household.、Uh, it was well, preschool. It was preschool. So, and it's. I'd like to say it's because my birthday was in August.、Mm. My, that's my, just what they tell.、Uh, that's what they tell. That's what mom says. We、well, wanted、sure. you to be a leader, not a follower. So we're going to hold you back because you were struggling quite a bit in preschool. Well, that's that's completely fair. Actually, that's. I mean, that's how I got started because I my birthday is October, so it was either get me. Started a little early, or have me wait a whole year. And my mom's like, "Let's start you early." And then I guess it went to my head, and I'm like, "All right, why don't we skip a couple more? Like, let's <laughs> let's, let's, let's just keep this train going." 
<laughs> and you still are. Yep. That's yeah. awesome. And you came to football late as a result. Yes, I did. No need, yeah, no tw- need to 27. Wow. Tw- tw- 27 was the first time I put on pads. Amazing. So that- that's 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 like the reverse of a te- of a Texas boy story, but right? you know, yeah. Okay, so true. football versus yeah. sumo. Do tell. Yeah, so fo- football versus sumo. So I'll, I obviously play on the line, and I've been playing nose tackle and defense tackle. Do do some guard as well on the offensive line. And wait, wait, wait. The- how how big are you? Yeah, how tall are you, stats. and how much do you weigh? Oh, okay. What are my stats? Um, well, it depends on. So when I was the nose tackle for Cambridge, that was a, a little while ago because I'm back in the U.S. now. I'm five foot. Well, I haven't changed my height. I'm five foot nine. That hasn't okay. gone anywhere. Okay. Uh, and and I've been anywhere from two twenty to two ninety five. Okay. okay. And right now I'm two eighty. And what is and that? When, in, what's that in stones for our European <laughs> listeners? <laughs> Stone, I have no idea. In, in kilograms, um, yes. I'm currently 126, 127. And when I was the nose tackle, I was 133. So did you, in the sumo world, did you feel like the small man in the room or did you feel average? Actually, well, I, neither, to be honest. Um, there are wrestlers of all sizes, uh, particularly, obviously, you know, the te- the wrestlers that you see on TV, which get to the highest level, they tend to be of a particular size. But when you're at the college level or even the lower ranks, you are going to have wrestlers who are of different heights. Like, I mean, actually, even in professional, you have Takakesho. Takakesho is only five foot nine, just like I yeah. am. He's, yeah. he's a short little thing, yeah. right? And then you're going to have your, your, your smaller wrestlers, your thinner wrestlers, as everyone tends to you know, really enjoy watching them. And then you have your big, tall guys. Right, um, but I remember wrestling with uh, one guy. He, he goes by Tsuki-chan. He he, he was um, absolutely adorable. But he he weighed the least <laughs> amount. Uh, like he 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 was the lightest wrestler at Nichi Dai, and that that guy had the biggest heart of anyone there. He would fight anyone at any size, including and he he and I fought quite a bit. And he was. Oh, what was he? He must have been 75 kilos, which is like 160 pounds, 165 pounds, something like that. So, you know, they get small. And and I never got, I got down to 220. I lost 35 pounds the first month I joined Nietzsche Dai. Um, And I wasn't trying to lose the weight. And then so I got down to 220 and then I slowly built it up over the years afterwards in in a better way. So height wise, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, for sumo wrestlers, Pretty short. Uh, Weight-wise, there are professionals that weigh less than I do or weigh around the same I do. But, you know, when, when you're next to Baruto, everyone seems small. <laughs> that is true. I would imagine. That would be quite uh, – I, I, yeah, that's a big guy. Yes, he is. Um, Have you guys ever watched Hard Knocks? It's a Dallas Cowboys. It's behind the oh, scenes. Oh, the documentary yeah. on the Cowboys? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're watching it. Yeah, every year they do a different team. This year's Dallas. They actually did the Cleveland Browns a few years ago before, I think it was before they went 0-16. Um, but <laughs> the offensive line coach, there's a there's one brief scene where the offensive line coach is actually showing the offensive lineman uh, clips of sumo. And he says in, in that particular clip that sumo wrestlers are the best pass blockers on the planet. <laughs> is that and, true? And, and it is absolutely true. 
Uh, although my particular style, because I'm the Denchimichi style, I'm much more of a defensive tackle than an offensive tackle. But all the lessons I learned from Sumo immediately translated to playing on the line. In particular, with the one-on-one play between like whether you're trying to maintain the block or shed the block, whether yeah. you're offense or defensive line, obviously. Um, where you put your hand. So like when I was when I was doing uh, football practice, the offensive line coach because the line was kind of all together when, when we, because we don't have a big enough team over at the university of Cambridge. There's not many players. That's why I'm the starting nose tackle. Um, <laughs> you know, we would do these foot drills and of course you have to work on making sure you don't have false starts and everything else. That's very important to football, which has nothing to do with sumo, but when it was how to engage a, another player and put particularly in, in run block, right? Cause you need to push the guy back and create the hole for your running back. Mm-hmm. A lot of people where they were pushing, they didn't understand where their hands are supposed to go and where their leverage is. And sumo w- was what I use to teach them, right? You need to keep your elbows in and you need to you grab where they're Cause you can grab the, uh, the shoulder pads and mm-hmm. you can crank those up which is the same thing we did in sumo, uh, which is, you know, no matter how big a guy is, he, everyone has a neck and he doesn't weigh much more beyond the neck. So you, you want to, you know, push him as high up as you can. And I tend to like to wrestle grabbing a guy's neck because he, he, he just don't weigh much up there and you push him up and you push him back and a you'll get. Notoa attack. Wow. That we see all the time. Yeah, it's great. And, and never, you, you will push someone back doing that. Oh, please go I've ahead. never talked to anyone in my entire life who says, I love going for somebody's neck. Like people don't weigh much <laughs> up there. It's that's, true. That is crazy. How do they train you to, to avoid that sort of attack? Or they just, it sounds like they don't train you. They just go up and put them up against somebody who attacks your neck a bunch of times and you will figure out how to get out of that. In, indeed. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how, the, how, the, how they do it. Um, the way they do it, at least the way I do it. If it, the, the proper, ta- like the most common tachi eye is to hit from three points of contact, yeah. which is your forehead in the middle of their chest and then both your arms underneath their pecs. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. if, if my forehead is in your chest, you're not getting to my neck, at least not with any leverage, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're not really getting to anything with any leverage unless you have really long arms and you can grab my belt. So... And it's the same rule in football, actually, particularly for block shedding. Like, I, I don't do fancy swims or anything. It's just straight bull rush. And then I'll just take my helmet and put it straight into the offensive lineman's chest. And, like, my offensive lineman, what they said was the hardest thing about defending me was they would have to drop their hands down below their hips to try to get a hold of me because I won't stand up, which is what I learned from sumo. You stay right. low and go yeah. forward. So it, that, that's what was so translatable, was staying low and flexible. And then the, 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 when, you know, when you're up higher than someone else, your leverage is just not as good. Right, Unless right. you have much longer arms, in which case you can compensate for that. But most don't. I have long arms. <laughs> I could have been a really good long arm sumo wrestler, but I'm have. afraid the time for that is long gone. Yes, you might be past. <laughs> no, wait, who's the guy that's 50 that's still... That's still wrestling. Can't remember his oh, name. show. Oh, I forgot his name. But they love to bring him up in all the news that he's still mm-hmm. going, still going, still going. Who did you uh, train with or or meet over there that we would recognize that you particularly enjoyed? Sure. Uh, well, the, my favorite that I enjoyed. I'm so glad to see he has success. Is uh, Toby Zadu. 
Oh, I love Toby's audio. Um, Flying Monkey. Yeah, Flying Monkey is his, and and that is that is his personality. Uh, he he was he was a junior when I first arrived at Nietzsche Dai, so he and I spent a lot of time together. Uh, he, he like the seniors and the juniors really got along with me, and we'd go out drinking and stuff. And the first years and second years didn't like me because I was the new guy, but I didn't have to do any of the cleaning or anything. So, so I didn't get to know them all too well, but the older guys, so uh, Endo had just left the year before, uh, but I met him a couple of times. Then uh, Diamami was the captain um, when I first arrived. And then Mitoryu, who's in Juryo, um, the Mongolian, he's actually who I fought at the world championships. The year he got gold one of the people he beat was me, um, which, <laughs> w- which I knew was going to happen because I'd been in practice with the band for a very long time. I love um, it. But yeah, so it'd be Tobizaru, Dayamami, Mitoryu, and then somewhat Endo. And then, as I said, I had a pretty good relationship with Bartho as well. And do but, you uh, still keep in touch with these men? <clears throat> I mean, I can still contact him today if I wanted to. He, he is very sweet and, and very playful. Um, a, a very fun guy when, when you get him outside of the Dokyo. I heard you say in another interview that that is one thing that most people don't understand about sumo wrestlers is just yeah. how different they are outside the ring and how fun and playful and great mm-hmm. guys to have at a party. They, they mean, really are. I mean, it's every personality you can think of. But yeah, because yeah. when, I, when I was at Nietzsche Dai, right, that that's a that's a college team, but we all live together and it's essentially a heya. It's run like a professional heya. Really? So wow. within okay. yeah within that you know structure there was what thirty some odd guys, so you had you had the guys that were the ones that would like literally play pranks on other people. You had the one who was really only interested in making the chanko nabe and not wrestling anymore. You had the guy <laughs> like you you had the guy that I was really close to. He was the kind of guy um, like one day I had to go sign a lease for an apartment because I couldn't live there anymore. And in order to do that, I had to go during practice. So I wasn't at practice and he comes and he sees me later on that day. And he just, he just starts yelling at me. Like, why weren't you at practice? What are you doing? And I was trying to tell him like, well, you know, I, I have to move into this new place. I said, no, you live here. This is your home. You are a wrestler. And I was trying to explain to him, no, I'm not. <laughs> they won't let me be. <laughs> like, I have, to, I have to do these other things. But, you know, so you have guys who are super intense and super involved. And then you had other guys who, mm-hmm. you know, I remember one guy, we, we, we only talked twice. And it was because he was really into rap. So, and he was just, he wanted me to translate <laughs> rap lyrics to him in Japanese. <laughs> which which, which oh, I found quite difficult, but, you know. So yeah, the, again, they run their personalities run all over the place. Mm. All right, I feel like uh, I'm I'm cognizant of time, and I definitely want sure. to hear you talk a little bit about your research because I know you're going for your PhD okay. at Cambridge, and it's related yeah. to sumo history, uh, archery, mm-hmm. horse racing. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the field of research that you're working in, and uh, how you hope it will affect sumo in the future, perhaps. Sure. Okay. So I, I, I study pre-modern history at the University of Cambridge, and my particular research looks at the political, social, and economic importance of organized physical competitions. And for academic reasons, I can't call sports, but for here, sports at the Heian court during the Heian period, which is the 9th century through the 12th century, 
those people who know their Japanese history, this is the time period of the tale of Genji. Um, all the poetry is being written. All the very fancy court rituals are going on. And this is also a period of relative peace before the uh, samurai well, – they weren't called samurai at this point – but before the Japanese warriors take over. And, and start enacting more influence in the provinces and within each other. the court itself. And so my, uh, my no, research... I feel like you should have, you just doogie housered all over. I just couldn't... I, I need a translator. Well, You're so smart. <laughs> I was just going to say, we joke here <laughs> that when we look into Japanese history, everything begins in the Edo period. Everything sure. goes back to the Edo period. So can you please sure. translate for someone that really doesn't know that much about Japanese history, how this compares to the Edo period and what the hell we've been talking about? Because we don't <laughs> We're like, the Edo period is like a renaissance of sorts. It's a long time ago, <laughs> but we don't know. So uh, it's interesting that, that you say the Edo period, and obviously since you're talking about sumo, that makes a whole lot of sense. But uh, the Edo period is, again, a, a very long period of relative peace because the country gets unified under the Tokugawa shogunate. Prior to that, the longest period of peace was the Heian period, which is when uh, Heian-kyo, which is modern-day Kyoto, has this thriving court culture where what they love to do is uh, write poetry and you know, debate Buddhist principles and wear lavish clothing and have all these various uh, rituals involved to um, – well, essentially, it's, it, you know, that, that is what their life is. And then at this time, there is no particularly fiat monetary system, meaning there's, there's no money. It's based in land, so they have the provinces – which is everything outside of Kyoto, bring in the taxes and they you know, do what they want with that. So it, it's a time period of, of, of very rich court culture. So when you think about nobles, Japanese nobles, you normally think about the Heian period, not the Edo period, because the Edo period, your nobles are actually samurai, right? Your nobles are the military class, which has turned themselves into the top of the social hierarchy. And before that was not the case, which would be, oh. I mean, I... I, I, I <laughs> I, hesi I hesitate to say it's similar to Europe because there's a lot of problems using those kind of phrases. But like, like think more of court nobles in, in like a, um, a Western sense as opposed to knights. And again, I don't want to make too many comparisons there. But like th th these guys don't have their position based on anything militaristic. It's much okay. more about what you can write, what you can do, what you can say. Okay, and and so you are stud studying texts that came from this period. Does that Correct. mean court records? Does that mean poetry? All of the above. Sure. Yeah. So I I do court records. I do what are called uh, well they'll translate as courtier diaries, um, and unlike you know modern diaries, which is like you know today I was sad or today was a great day, here's what I did. What these guys were doing is they were keeping a record of what they did at court and what was the proper thing to do for precedent, because the Japanese really cared about precedent. So they would go back and read, well, what did we do 50 years ago or 75 years ago? So it's essentially a manual on how to be a good noble. And yeah. in these particular records... Uh, a few of them, any that we still have. It's actually very fortunate how many records are still extant from the Heian period. If you look at the years, as I said, of roughly the 9th century to the 12th century, that kind of time period in many other places in the world, you're not going to have much. But in Japan, there is tons. And you know, China also has tons. It's just they, they wrote a lot of things down and they kept their paper, which is mm -hmm. great for us. 
Um, so I read about the, the men who were spectators at these events, at the sumo events, at the horse riding events, or at the archery events. And then they would say, like, who came through the door first? Who was wearing what? Where did they sit? Uh, who wrestled who? What the eventual outcome was? If there had been a problem of some kind, and then maybe like a little blurb at, at the end too, and then and that would be it. That'd be it, the record. So it was so more. It would be of a, a detailed yeah. event as opposed to an observation of or w- w- inserting feelings or themselves into it. It was a little bit on the outside. Yes, uh, I mean for the most part, the, the guy I read the most, he definitely throws in uh, whenever there's something he doesn't like, he will end his his record with "This is outrageous." <laughs> really. Um, yeah, he, he loves doing that. Like, he, he, he did not suffer impropriety <laughs> at all. Um, so this he is will outrageous. put that in. But that, that, I love that's, ex- that's exactly what he says at the end there. But yes, the rest of it is a detail of what happened because they want to look back later and know what to do. Because performing these rituals properly gains you reputation, which is a form of social or political capital, which is going to help you in your career. And that translates to sumo in in the way that we would see the rituals still maintained to this day? Uh, I'm very glad you asked that question. No. Um, the, the, the rituals that are done today are mm-hmm. not the same as the rituals that were done before. Okay. Um, How it, do they it, differ? Um, the, the short answer is in every way you could possibly imagine while still being the same thing. So like, for example, back then there was no dohyo. There was no raised um, boundary. In fact, they were fighting in the garden of the Shishin Den, which is the main hall of the palace. There could not be a more prestigious place to do this. Wow. However, it is flat and they didn't have any outside boundary. There wasn't this idea of pushing someone outside as an option. It was to take people down. So uh, again, I mean, that's as different from modern sumo really as it can be. Uh, How it is similar though, is they, they cared that wrestlers were big and strong. Uh, we have records where they specific, like there are a couple years, they do something called a Gokan, which is where the emperor or one of the crown princes will inspect the wrestlers that were brought to the court. And there, I, I should back up a little bit. The reason why the wrestlers are at the court is the, the court tells all the provinces that they need to send wrestlers to the annual sumo tournament, which actually there's a couple of historians that have argued this and I happen to agree. This was a form of reinforcing their legitimacy because they're essentially asking for tribute. Mm-hmm. Like you must oh. send us one of your biggest and strongest. And then he has to come wrestle. I wouldn't say simply for our entertainment, but that that's one of the things. And anytime that a province sends something forward, that's them agreeing to the fact that they're underneath the court. I so anyway, right. So, you know, sometimes they, they would they wouldn't send good wrestlers or maybe just there weren't weren't a lot of strong men at the time and they would have these things called gokons where they, they're looking at these guys and they say, You know what? You don't look good enough, just go home. Oh. Like, like we don't want you here. So yeah. big and strong was a thing. And then they also passed a rule in one year, which was but it, they can't just be big and strong. They have to also be good at it because sumo wrestling is is a martial skill. So they need to also have some level of wrestling talent. So they, they definitely cared about the wrestlers being big, strong, and good at wrestling. So obviously there's your connection. 
between yeah. modern sumo, Edo period sumo, and pre-modern sumo. And the most important thing about what I'm saying there, that might not sound controversial, but the reason why they cared that they were big and strong and good at wrestling is because these tournaments were le- what I call legitimately competitive, which means that the outcome was not fixed. So many people have argued that sumo back then was just a ritual, like Guys came up, they did their thing, no one really cared what happened in the actual match, and then they moved on with their day. Uh, but if you look at other rituals that happen that aren't based in like physical competition, so not archery, horse racing, sumo wrestling, but more like we bring a white horse in and people look at the white horse, that has you know very specific steps that you do, but it always has a fixed outcome. These people go here, do this, we do that, and we move on. Mm-hmm. But in, in a sumo match, because they're because you have two different wrestlers, they had the left and the right in the way that they're split now in east and west. But they had the left and the right because that's the way the government was split at the time. The left was supposed to win more often than not because in their society, the left was slightly more prestigious than the right. But mm-hmm. they don't. In fact, and they don't win. Some people have argued that the left wins so much that it was rigged, and I completely and totally disagree because those numbers are a lot closer than people think. And there are records of – there's a great one, which the – there's a thing called Tenban, which is where the emperor can change about. So he can change who won. And we go, well, that's not competitive. And it's like, yeah, sure. Not in a modern sense. I didn't say it was fair. Right? (laughs) This This isn't a modern sport. But every once in a while, an emperor would be like, wait, the right one? They're not supposed to do that. Okay, we're going to make the left win. And some people have pointed to that and said, well, that's why it wasn't competitive. And I say the exact opposite, which is if the left was always supposed to win, it would. Right. But the right actually won the match. And the emperor's like, wait a minute. The other guy's supposed to win. So I'm going to change the outcome. But that didn't change what actually happened. And that actually, the, this ten bond I was talking about, this reversal only happens 10 times over two centuries. So it's not even like it happens all the time. So these competitions are proper competitions. And the same thing with horse racing and archery. These were actual competitions. And how well you performed had a correlation to whether you received certain kinds of rewards or even titles, which could get you land in your own provinces or rise you up the ranks, all sorts of different things, in much the same way that sumo would eventually be in the modern age. That is so fascinating. And and this is, you said, from the 8th century to about the 12th century? In the oldest Japanese record, which is the Kojiki, there is a story of how the island of Japan is made based on a sumo wrestling match between two gods however they don't use the word sumo and it definitely does not um it doesn't resemble sumo at all and then again in the in the next history the nihongi uh they do they have a couple other stories in there those don't really relate but when you're when we have record of actual court sumo which starts in the 700s and then goes all the way up until the mid to late 12th century the ones we can actually read the details of, these are, as far as I can tell, a legitimate competition and an actual organized tournament that these wrestlers would wrestle at. And then they could, based on how they would perform, could increase their political or social capital and also potentially get them land, which is essentially the way that they did their economics at the time. So my question is, you know, we have a record list of the Yokozuna and Yokozuna license, but of course that didn't start way back then. Is there a, a badass wrestler of years ago that mm. um that maybe we 
don't recognize as much because we always refer back to the list of Yokozuna, but we mm. also know about the licensing and, you know, but was there someone in ye old days? Is that an official term? Ye old days? Um, <laughs> We'll that we might official. not know about it. Make it official. Yeah, you can use that in all of your research. I approve. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll make sure you're in the footnotes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I'm really glad you asked this because I totally agree. Like every time someone asks, like, who's your favorite wrestler? Like, well, you're not going to know who he is, but I love this guy. So back then they didn't have Yokozuna. Um, rightfully so, but they did have something called a hotte, which actually uses the characters, um, for best or most like words like side, like saigo, which means last, um, and then te, which is hand. So essentially for me, like if I translate it into English, it'd like be best hand. So like the most, the most skilled or the the best wrestler essentially. Uh, and I just translate that into English as, as a champion. Right. And this would be based on how he wrestled. And there's one wrestler in particular although there are many but there's one wrestler in particular whose name is Sunio and Sunio is so badass that a couple hundred years later when they're writing down these stories uh the, they they have these collections of didactic buddhist stories there are multiple stories about this one particular wrestler and how good he was so there, there, one of the stories, for example, I, I love this. This comes out of a, a collection known as the Konjaku Monogatari Shu. Um, and this was written, well, I don't, I, late, I think it's, I think it's early, four, it's late 13th, early 14th. I don't remember, but hundreds of years after this guy is dead. And it's, Sunio is just walking and he's walking by, by the river and this giant snake you know, puts his head out and Sunio's looking at it, like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen. So then the snake wraps his tail around Sunio's legs and Sunio still doesn't move. He's like, I, I don't, well, what's going to happen? And then the snake is so long, it goes to the other side of the river and wraps itself around a tree and it tries to drag him into the water and it tries to pull so hard, but the tree stays firm and Sunio stays firm until the snake rips itself in half. Oh, <laughs> and then he looks down and like his skin is like, you know, it's, it's, it's bruised and battered. Like cause something had constricted it. And he's like, Oh, I guess it was pretty strong. And then he moves on with his day. <laughs> like, like, I love it. He's, I love he's just it. really cool. Or there's another one where, you know, he's watching, he's watching a, another match in front of him. These two guys are wrestling and he's for the right. Again, that side that's not supposed to be strong and he's yeah. the strongest there ever was. But, you know, whatever. We're not talking about that. Um, <laughs> so the wrestlers of the right have been winning all day. So someone does a, like a curse or a, or a prayer kind of somewhere in the middle to say, hey, the left needs to win the next match. So the right guy is beating the left guy until, it, oh, until he's almost hasn't beat. And then the left guy wins. And it's and it's just in this very bizarre, miraculous way. And Sunio gets so angry, he just stands up, goes over to the guy who lost, and picks him up and throws him into a room. Like picks him all the way up and just throws him outside the ring, and then gets disqualified because the match hasn't started yet. And what I really love about that story is the you know the prayer said the the right wouldn't win anymore, but he was the final match and he didn't lose very often, so they just had him get disqualified. So he didn't oh, win, yeah, and he didn't yeah. lose. 
It's great. I, I, I love him. He's, you, you can find him all over um, the, these old stories. And the really great thing about these stories that, that a lot of people will miss is these sumo wrestlers were not courtiers. And these stories that were written down were always about the courtiers. It was always about the nobles. But right. the wrestlers but are, are common like, people. Yeah, yeah, just bruisers. I love it. it Indeed. Bruisers is a great term. I'm, I'm going to take that one too. I'll put you down at the bottom. You have me in the footnotes. <laughs> Absolutely. No. Okay. So I want to know for mm-hmm. so many of us that love sumo, love Japanese culture, mm-hmm. in some of these fascinating stories and tales of ye old days, is there, you know, an approachable book or way or way you'd point us to learn more about this? Because a lot of us, you know, we don't read kanji. We don't speak Japanese. And mm-hmm. even though we're, we're learning, we're trying to. But so many of us have such interest in Japanese culture and want to know how to connect to some of this, some of this folklore and some of this history. Sure. Unfortunately, I'm two years out of the end of mine, so I can't plug my book just yet, um, <laughs> which is what I would do. The thing is, the, the most comprehensive and definitive book on sumo written in the English language was written by P.L. Kyler, Sumo from Right to Sport. And if, if you're just looking for particularly a teleological look at sumo, then it's teleological. That is a Doogie Howser word if I've ever heard it. What is teleo, it, 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 teleological? Teleological. <laughs> Essentially, like it, it starts from the beginning because its purpose is to go towards the future. So you're, you're trying to figure out why something became what it was in the, in, in, in the future, how it got to it by then looking to the past there. So the point of this, like, I mean, it says from right to sport, the, you know, the author, they look at the old sumo to try to contrast it to the new one. And then they try to connect it through Shinto, which any Japanese historian will tell you the word Shinto is a very problematic term that kind of grates on our ears. Hmm. Um, but it is still by far the most comprehensive book on sumo. And even like when mine comes out, mine isn't only about sumo and it's only in the hang on so if you're looking for that in English, you're not going to do any better than P.L. Kyler's book, which was written in the 70s, which, wow. which is quite sad that we, we don't have one uh, that's a little more updated. Right. Uh, it, in terms of looking at like the Heian period, which I was talking about before, the best thing to read is the Tale of Genji. Uh, there are multiple translations of that, but the Tale of Genji, I mean, it, 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 it's, there's so many reasons to read it. One, it's considered by many to be the first uh, first, well, I don't remember exactly what the categorization is, but it's the first type of novel of its type in the world that we still have. And it was also written by a woman at the court. So if you're into uh, what women were writing before, or you want to know what life was like for women at that time, or if you're really interested in the, the old structure of novels, or you're interested in the time period, the tale of Genji is, is where you go. Um, it's also a very interesting story of an incredibly promiscuous man at court. So if you're into promiscuity and, and funny situations, <laughs> yeah. then then there you go. Smut. Yeah, it, it, ye old smut. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and and they it. they you're, they had a bunch. They they were not shy back then. All, you're ticking all my boxes, no. Colton. I've, <laughs> I've seen all of the uh, the Yukioe uh, porno prints. Oh, it's, sure, yeah. There's yeah, a yeah. good no. amount of that. They were Indeed. kinky bunch. <laughs> they were. They were. But yeah, any, anything about that is, is going to be great. You know, if you're into the more historical side, then I, I I would just recommend that kind of person hit me up on Facebook or an email because I'll I'll give you a laundry list. I mean, you know, that's what I got. I got 
you know, pages and pages for my bibliography of oh, really good it. books and stories. But that's, that's that, where I'd start. Taylor Genji or P.L. Kyler's sumo, The Right to Sport. You'd okay. also be and amazing to go to Japan with. All right? <laughs> like yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just somebody to be like, tell us what this is about and all the history. <laughs> You'd be like the world's most badass tour guide. What's, oh, what's your goal, kind. Colton? Like, is sure. your goal to finish your PhD and write your book? And then what? What are you going for? Yeah, so yeah, finish the PhD, make it a book, make my uh, my imprint on the academic world as best I can, and see how scathing the reviews will be when it comes out because I'm <laughs> arguing against quite a few different things. But you know, thereafter, I have two major routes I can go as a sports historian. I can either become a historian or you know professor, which is what I have always wanted to do, even since I was a kid. Or I could go into the sports entertainment world. I could, you know, do something related to, to sumo and or anything related really to sports. I'm, you know, I'm keeping myself open. Well, we will uh, plug your book two years in advance. Uh, so yeah, for Christ- thank you. Christmas list, yeah, 2023 <laughs> <Yeah>. or 2024. <laughs> look for. It's uh, what's the working title of your book right now? So it's the power of attorney, where attorney is the the old shorted spelling of tournament. Yes. Um, so, so the power of attorney, uh, Heian sports in medieval Japan, I or Heian physical competitions, and yeah, look it, it, for it, that it on your Christmas list. Yeah, I'll yeah. put that on my Amazon wish list now. Yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so, for any other kid out there who's perhaps playing video games and is sure. realizing they have an interest in Japanese military mm. history or even mm-hmm. sumo history, let's say mm. they're in a podunk small town of Texas. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice to them? Uh, my advice to them would be to know you're not alone, particularly in the internet age. And th- there are people who are so fascinated by sumo in particular, or military history or Japanese history. There are programs, even within the great state of Texas, you can go to the University of Texas like I did, which has a great East Asian studies program. You can go to the University of Cambridge like I did. You can go to Japan and teach English and know nothing about the history. If you have an interest in this particular culture, I would highly recommend that you continue to foster it because the longer you study it, the more you're going to learn it. It is so rich because it has been around for so long and is so different and contrasts with Western society, in particular American society, in so many ways that you are going to change your worldview based on doing so. So really just keep it up would be my yeah. answer there. You're so inspiring. It's been so wonderful talking with you um, just because you have such you. an inside. Thank you. Just an inside look at the sport that we are so fascinated with and we love so much. Mm. And as we continue to dig deeper and deeper into sumo, it just blows my mind. All the new things you can learn about it. Talking to you was really fun. <laughs> no, I'm happy to hear that. You. Are you on social media or can people find you? Or, yes, um, uh, certainly. Yeah, if you, if you look me up on Facebook, I am the only or or I'm one of the very few Colton Runyons and you'll either see me in a Mawashi or in football gear. You can also message me at Dallas Sumo with no spaces at gmail.com, which was what I called my sumo club. Well, good. Well, hopefully people will reach out to you and you're an amazing, amazing resource for all of us sumo nerds of the world. And uh, we really appreciate you giving us your time. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this. I appreciate it. Wow. What a fascinating guy, you know? I mean, he seems to follow his heart and what interests him. And he's just so incredibly smart. uses such big words that (laughs) I pretty much need a dictionary anytime I'm around him. But that blew my mind, especially the history and 
and um, everything that he's working on. I'll be looking forward to his book in a couple of years Yeah, when it comes out. I will be reading that. And if you're um, interested in knowing more about him, follow him on Facebook. He said that he's on Facebook and he can answer any other questions you might have. And he's got the inside track. So he might be a great resource for any of our listeners who have some specific questions. He seemed open to answer any and all. So yeah. 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 Thank you, Colton. Yes. And thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Willie in Berlin for your incredibly generous donation to help keep us going. It's so appreciated, you guys. Just thanks for being here. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for being a part of this community. And we'll see you next week. That's right. Sayonara. See y'all later. Bye. Bye.